so this is a weird time. Between crypto, dark money, AI. This is the Facts in the Porcupine Podcast. Hello, good day. I'm ready to start your day. This is a weekend. It's been a week. So, I'll confuse Listen to what they have to say. This is a recording that was in the archives. It may be irrelevant, but it's more than likely bound to happen. Blockchain, have your own bank. Protect your own money. AI. It's another podcast of the Porcupine and Facts Experience. Well, one of the senators or the congressmen mentioned is CPAC speech, primary Republican. He mentioned crypto. Something's happening. The roof. Stay relevant. I have no clue. You know, you don't worry about, I mean, I, I don't know. The mindset has to change for the neighborhood, the people, the general population. So here we go. Dark money. In 2013, we began a film about Christian Freeland, who had written a bestseller about income inequality. How close are you to it? She's on a pool team. The book is called Plutocrats, from the Greek Plutos, wealth, Plutocratos, power, a perfect description of the World Economic Forum that meets every winter in Davos. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Charlie. I'm going to show you if you know I'm not a moron. I'm sure you're not a moron. And I'm actually a moron. Okay, okay. We're literally only at about three minutes. It's all about being a moron. Biggest tribes in this sort of 0.1% of group I call the plutocrats are the financiers, private equity, investment banking, the Russian oligarchs. Uh, these people. Uh, have businesses all over the world many times. Uh, they hang out in the same places and they are relatively so much wealthier than uh, what we're used to in the last 50 or 60 years. The world's 86 richest individuals now own as much wealth as the poorest half of humanity, 3.5 billion people. And much of that is dark money spent to control the political process. The gap between the people at the very top and everybody else has grown spiritually over the past three decades. The top 400 richest people in America. Wealth in that segment has quintupled. She's not anti-wealth, you know, because she's, she's not an ideologue. She's a, she's a journalist. But I think her big worry is that these plutocratic uh, regimes or plutocratic groups in different countries have the power to, as she says, you know, remake the rules in their own favor through the political system. They have so much money and so much influence in their own political systems, including the United States, that the plutocratic class can fix the game. Their company 
companies, their financial organizations, their manufacturing firms are favored in a way that, that stops social mobility from another level. Well, it's not simply an important issue, it's a reality. A gross disparity in terms of income with an oligarchic elite that is pulling down obscene amounts of money. I mean, that of Walmart makes $11,000 an hour. Um, CEOs, because they are able to impose austerity on their workers, essentially keep unions out, drive wages down, cut benefits, are rewarded like plantation owners. This obscene disparity between the people at the top and the people at the bottom, but it's now wider than it has ever been in the entire history of the world. It is now uh, that the gap between rich and poor on earth is greater probably than in uh, France just before the revolution. Once you have that gap, the temptation, even unconsciously, to use that extreme economic power that you have to wrest political advantage for yourself, for your company, for your sector, becomes, I think, really irresistible. It's now industry. Industry is a third party. And they, are the, and they are the owners of the government. They run the show. They can alter the rules of the game and pay people to ignore things and get into the, into the, into the justice system and so forth. And when you fix the game at this level and with the kind of uh, communications we now have around the world, internet and so forth, you can generate a little bit of a, you know, a, a volcano that may just go off. Many plutocrats come to Davos to privatize the public sector, but not all of them. George Soros has invested billions to champion democracy, threatened by tyrants like Russia's Vladimir Putin. He accepts in sort of a core part of his being that the world can change overnight, that social orders are human constructs, not natural laws, that you can be living in independent Hungary one day and in Nazi Hungary the next day and in communist Hungary the day after that. But George has this unique ability to be able to actually see the reality. Russia is, is, is sinking economically uh, and uh, it's being taken in the wrong direction by Putin. And this can be, and this being said, uh, inside the regime, Putin has to cling to power because it's the only place where he can feel safe. How does this work? Yeah, so very simply, any investor... Ukraine needs Russia and it needs the European Union and it needs it in spades as well because they
Two years later, I was in Kiev with the same bankers and politicians, meeting to expand markets and lay the groundwork for Ukraine's entry to the European Union. What's our view of the current situation? She's fine or holding a bit? Yes, yeah. You guys know Larry Summers? Hi. The elephant in the room was the war with Russia and whether a fragile Ukrainian democracy could survive it. We've seen the same plot in this movie again and again and again. This is not conflict between Russia and Ukraine. This is conflict between two civilizations. This is not a political movement that arose in Donetsk and Luhansk. This is a Russian invasion. Russian troops in regular formations on the ground in eastern Ukraine. Before that, there was artillery fire, airstrikes, helicopter penetrations. But there is a threat to European security. It's not only Ukrainian security. As if to draw a line in the sand with the West, Putin had invaded first Crimea, then Donetsk. Ukraine did not seem to have either the army or the money to stop him. Across the street from the conference, Ukrainians explore the possibilities of democracy. Every hour, couples are married in a cathedral, once reserved for the plutocrats. Ukraine was once a perfect plutocracy. A landed gentry owned everything, ruling a nation of serfs who owned nothing. Replaced today with the promise of an egalitarian society, a level playing field. I begin to understand. 
understand what living in a plutocracy means to poor people. In the fertile countryside that surrounds Kiev, more and more local boys are conscripted to fight in the war. Everything is for sale. Plutocrats even scrape up the soil itself for transport to Germany. In 1988, I had visited my relatives in western Ukraine. They lived and worked on collective farms. People who lived in um, viable, I would say even vibrant villages, they had they had the church, of course, right? They had uh, a village library, and then the woman was sort of running the village council. Oh, we do things for you. And there was the, the common pasture land where everybody had their jobs. Left without jobs when a local sugar beet factory shuts down, families have to survive on what they can grow. The animals they keep for meat and dairy consume what's left. Every leaf, stem, and root is put to use. When you have these woke revolutions, it requires all of us at some point to say, no, not going to do this. A nation has to have civic education. They have to know what the Constitution is. They have to know what the First Amendment is. And they have to have some idea who the people were that died in Shiloh. What Okinawa was about. Who Andrew Jackson was. Who Lincoln was. Who Harriet Tubman was. If you don't have models of your past, you're going to forget it. We are living in a country that has no resemblance to the visions of the founding fathers in the first 200 years of our history. We're losing that ability with tribal politics, wokeness, cancel culture. If you lose the idea of citizenship, and if Americans don't see themselves as unique citizens of the United States, then you don't have a country. The people who control us in the corporate boardroom in Hollywood and professional sports, the people on Wall Street, the people in Silicon Valley, they have found a way to siphon the profits from 7 billion people on the planet that have an iPhone or an email account or a Google search to an area of about 80 square miles. And if we don't wake up, the elite who don't believe in the American experiment will hijack our government. If we're aware of what they're doing and aware of the perilous status of citizenship, then we become masters of our own destiny. If we don't, then the citizenship that we've known for centuries will die. I'm Victor Davis Hanson. They are obsessed by their garden. What they're cultivating, how much they're taking off, what she's already can preserve this kind of thing, right? So this is not just like folkloric Ukrainians in their garden. This is feeding themselves. Because of the, the rise in prices since the austerity program was imposed after the EU Association Agreement was signed with people Poroshenko and, and, and the EU some months ago. Oh, 
The town has a common pasture where each household grazes its cow. Geese spend the day at the community pond. Neighbors trade and barter in place of a consumer economy. Centuries-old traditions being lived out by a final generation. Threatened by a recent $17 billion loan to Ukraine from the World Bank, stipulating the development of genetically modified crops. Will family farms here be able to compete with multinational agribusiness giants like Monsanto? refugees from the war in Syria, a million men, women, and children in the last year. Each night, the ships pass Cape Sunian and the temple of the god Poseidon, to the Greeks, the shaker of the earth. The world's earliest democracy took root here in 416 BC, but lasted only a century. In ancient Greece, Periclean Greece, uh, the rich men in the polis were expected not obliged, but expected to give to the public spirit and the common good. They built temples, gave blessings. Anybody who was a citizen of Athens, they get the idea of giving to the commonwealth from Prometheus. Prometheus is the titan who gives to mankind heat, light, freedom of thought, stores of memory. As long as the rich put more emphasis on their store of virtue than on their hoard of wealth. They can be looked at with admiration, not with envy and resentment. But when they put too much emphasis on their hoards of wealth, that's when it slides toward plutocracy. Philoxenia, which means hospitality, 
when they come here because of a better life that we cannot really offer now because we are going through our own economical crisis. We have a very high percentage of unemployment. We cannot employ them. We cannot give them. But still people give them things from their own refrigerator, from their own pocket. The governments go by papers. We go by things. Stephanie Sampson is an Athens artist. As her neighborhood has been battered by the recession, she has begun to paint the homeless outside her door. Four languages you speak. You're a smart man. How how you speak so many languages? Stephanos? Mustafa. Mustafa. Are you from Israel? No, Palestinian. You're Palestinian. You teach us a lot, and I think it's up to problemata. Long time before this together. Uh huh. I can work. Yeah. I go there for work. I work and I go back. Uh huh. Like Ukraine, Greece is a marginal economy, forced to depend on loans from German banks. As much as its government tries to provide social services, it lacks the necessary revenue. Kids love art because they're so tactile and physical at that age. And, you know, they've been traveling, they need to play. Children can be joyful under many circumstances. The refugees have everything they own carefully packed in their backpacks, but no idea of what fate their future holds. In this time of severe income inequality, Greece depends on tourism. Rich foreigners who come to buy trinkets and enjoy the ruins. I began to search the internet to find out what ordinary Greeks felt about the crisis. Pues cierto, no tenemos el guest es Newton, because its measures are the most anti-social measures. Voted in any memorandum. It is up to the people here to make a real change in the future. We're going to stay as long as it takes in order to take our lives back. We are not free to rule our country. We don't have our future in our hands. Crisis is not for all. It's for the people who don't have. And they're being forced to pay for the malfeasance of their banks, for the speculative bubble. 
loopholes that were created by their banks. Government serves the interests of international financiers and banks at the expense of, of the average man and woman in the street. The suffering in countries like Greece now is quite severe. A mile from the Piraeus, where the refugees come ashore, lie the marinas of the plutocrats. I talk to local fishermen who've seen their harbor taken over by the billionaires who control the world economy. Yes, me. And uh, all of them must go to jail. El Merkab, owned by the former Prime Minister of Qatar, costs $250 million. It can accommodate 50 guests, each in their own stateroom. The owners of the media, the owners of the big ships that we have, the owners of the factories, they don't pay taxes, they don't obey the laws, there are no laws on there. They can do anything. Not the prime ministers, not the president, people with money. They rule the world behind the curtains. They play with our future and with our lives and with our happiness. In Athens, a magazine editor, Kostas Vaxavenis, is arrested for publishing the Swiss bank accounts of Greek tax evaders. $200 billion have left the country illegally. The protests by now a daily occurrence in Athens turned violent. While the tax evaders go free, thousands lose their jobs to please the austerity agenda of the European banks. The special interests of the rich ravage the Greek economy. High on Mount Parnassus, the ghosts of a lost Greek democracy haunt the temples of Delphi. Myth says that dolphins once led Apollo to this sacred place home to an oracle who could solve the country's problems. It was a place that people had to learn, to see other people, to talk. We used the theaters to talk with the philosophers. Philosophers could come here and talk with the people. Teach the people. And everybody could go. It was free, of course. The rich people had to pay for the poor people to do whatever they could not do, the rich people had to pay. The rich people had to offer. Because they could not do otherwise. Just looking the river that goes down there, the town of Apollo, make you enjoy here the silence. Representative government had its roots in the soil. A rural culture of shepherds and olive growers turned philosophers and statesmen. But today, like in Ukraine, 
It is those farmers who are being hit hardest by the corporatization of agriculture. As ancient Athens grew, the temptations of wealth and empire led inevitably to war. The ideal of a government founded on virtue disappeared. Aristotle says when a society becomes diseased with plutocracy, he calls it, the word in Greek is pleonixia, and that means the wish for more, more of everything. But that's our consumer society. And that is the reason that we continually drive ourselves into debt. I mean, you know, the plutocracy manages to extend easy credit to large numbers of American people who are conned into thinking that they are entitled to the good life that they cannot afford, but then they they borrow money and the credit card companies charge them 20% and just plunder them. The image of not the substance of democracy, the religion of the consumer economy, the chance to make everything right with a single throw of the dice. Hitting the jackpot in a game the plutocrats fixed long ago. But at week's end, the faithful fly home to a radically changed America. In 2008, as Wall Street CEOs paid themselves millions in bonuses for nearly destroying the economy, $13 trillion of household income disappeared. Over 5 million families were evicted from their homes. Echoes of a long suppressed anger could be heard in legislatures and town halls across the country. Four percent of the American people own 85 percent of the wealth of America. And that over 70 percent of the people of America don't own enough to pay the debt that they owe. How many of them ever went to the barbecue? We read one day, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by that creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But if a man doesn't have a job or an income, he has neither life nor liberty nor the possibility for the pursuit of happiness. He merely exists. The issue of wealth and income inequality is the great moral issue of our time, and it's the great political issue of our time, and it's the great economic issue of our I made my first film in Canada, A Portrait of Fort Chippewan. 
a native village in the far north that survived on trapping and fishing. Alberta's oldest community. It was 1970. People looked after each other. The benefits of the local economy were shared. Then upstream on the Peace River, a massive dam was built to provide power for Vancouver and the lower mainland of British Columbia. Local lakes the river fed began to dry up until trappers had to resort to dog teams to launch their boats. We just don't know that what we're going to do. And this is how long we're going to be last. We don't know. Electricity enough for the smelters, enough for the factories, enough for the cloth mills and the refinery. Do we have to have a battle over it? Do we have to have cars and boats? Put on black to stand? If there has to be another blue or yellow rebellion, I think I'd be one of them. It was only the beginning. Within years, corporations like Exxon, BP, Shell, and Total arrived to develop the tar sands. Multinational plutocracies with incomes larger than most countries. The mines are like feudal domains, with airstrips for the executive jets of the plutocrats, each a nation unto itself, beyond the reach of the local community, effectively beyond the reach of government. part of the world is, is a terrorist house and what's happening there is is beyond imagination they're not hungry for oil they're hungry for money traveling on the water the water tells you that there's something is going going wrong to take notice of that. I'm endangering myself sometimes. That's how I'm thinking, that being on the river. Because I know if I drink this water, that, I, that my health is in jeopardy. It's an indefensible Defense is that it produces money. It's money that comes at a hideous cost. That's been enough in Canada to drown out the voices of its better angels. As every day that it stays open, it's pouring more carbon into the atmosphere that we can't afford to have. And of course, the U.S. is equally complicit in the whole thing. We're the junkie that's buying the, you know, buying the drugs that cannabis peddling. When I returned to Fort Chip in 2010, the water had been polluted. People no longer ate the fish. Cancer rates had doubled 
the communities downstream from the tar sands. This is not a normal industry. This is the most powerful industry on the planet. ExxonMobil at one point is making up to a billion dollars a day. So these guys have the cash to print any message they want, buy any messenger they want. I mean, the money is so great and so extraordinary, it can basically deal with almost any form of opposition over time. That's how business is done in a resource economy. As local economies disappeared, 43 billion more dollars poured into tar sands expansion. The CEO of Exxon, Rex Tillerson, raised his salary to 40 million dollars a year. Freeland has brought her son Ivan to visit her father in the Peace River country of northern Alberta. The family has farmed here for a century. This was once the last outpost of settlement in the Americas, where immigrants from across Europe came to start again, beyond the reach of the plutocrats. We are in Peace River, in the Peace Valley. So this is really where my family has been since my great-grandparents came up here, in the Peace Valley. Up there is Misery Mountain, uh, so-called because it was a pretty hard place to be a pioneer. Just over that hill over there, there's a little grave site called Pioneer Cemetery where my grandparents are buried. When I was born, we lived in kind of a shack just at the end of the field where my grandparents lived. This is really the frontier out here. Um, my dad owns a breaking plow and I've plowed with him. And what that means is it's the kind of a plow you use to plow up essentially parkland or forest land and make it a field. Um, like we are really at the edge of cultivated human life. This idea that, this, that the world is infinite and we can do what we want in it because there'll always be enough is deeply rooted in our culture. And I think it has the traction of a religious idea. When Queen Victoria died, which is only just over 100 years ago, the human population was a quarter what it is now, but the world economic output was about a fiftieth of what it is now, in other words, 2%, which is a rough measure of the impact of humans on the earth. The people who ended up here were people who wanted to be very independent and not bound by social convention or social stratification. Um, they were people really who wanted to be responsible themselves for their own destinies. Like Ukraine, the family farm is disappearing on the Canadian prairie. Agribusiness now controls the economy of grain from planting to harvest. Monopolies now control the choices farmers have to get their grain to market. When a multinational decided to shut down a local railway, the people of Forestburg, Alberta, went door to door and raised $5 million to buy the train themselves. The only problem was they now had to learn to run it. All you do is drop it in, move it in, park it in, and start it. 
by China, this globalization. They, they, they really do live a different life. In the last century, American plutocracy has been built at the expense of working people. From steel mills to oil fields, dangerous working conditions led to strikes and labor unrest. The plutocrats retreated to their estates. The Gilded Age had begun. There are always forces that are going to be trying to capture democracy. This is what we use Carnegie. Carnegie is the first great American philanthropist, and in 1888, he writes the gospel of wealth. In 1901, he sells U.S. Steel to J.P. Morgan for $480 million, becomes the richest man in America, and says, a rich man who dies with his wealth intact dies disgraced.
across the country, a deep distrust of the financial system takes root. A new World Trade Center rises from the ashes. Little has changed. Profit still drives America. The banks direct the global economy at warp speed. We just saw in the city of Camden, New Jersey, which per capita is the poorest city in the United States, they fired, and also, by the way, the most dangerous, uh, they fired the entire police force because it was unionized, hired a countywide non-unionized police force, incorporating some of the old officers back into it, and paying them 50% less. That's the future. What we're seeing is a global corporate state uh, that has no loyalty to any particular nation state. They've devastated my country, the United States. They've devastated huge sections of Canada as well, and they play workers around the globe off of each other so that uh, the working class and the industrialized countries are told they have to be competitive, which in a global marketplace means being competitive with prison labor in China or sweatshop workers in Bangladesh who make 22 cents an hour. Camden is a microcosm of what's happening across the country. Whole communities turn to graveyards as jobs move offshore. one kind or another there's there's no way around that and that that was true of the founders of the american republic madison defines them as men with the wisdom to discern and the virtue to pursue the common good of the society you have to keep tinkering you have to keep um, remembering that virtue is Trusts in the 1920s, 
five years ago, there have been 6,000 people at the local, state, and federal level that have been prosecuted and convicted for corrupt activity in government offices. 6,000 people, including last week, the governor of the state of Virginia and his wife were convicted on 16 counts uh, for taking money in return for favors. Uh, Katya Gorczynskaya, she's the deputy editor of Kiev Post. Um, when the current government came into place, Prime Minister Yatsenyuk said that, according to their estimates, the previous government at the highest level stole about 70 billion worth of wealth from Ukraine. And that was the original estimate. Since then, it's been growing. It's now 120 or something like that. And that's about, you know, Ukraine's budget this year is about 30 billion. So that gives you the scale of corruption. As new spread of the Walker cutbacks, people on Twitter and Facebook around the world began to order pizzas for the students occupying the legislature. Phoning in their credit cards, they would feed the protesters for the hundred days of the occupation. Sounds right. Sounds right. They got the people 
the recall election finally arrives. Despite a final push by the unions and their allies, early results show the governor in the lead. Somehow they're projecting that Walker's already won, but I don't believe it yet. I don't believe it until a little later when folks are all coming to that just some of them. Walker wins 52% of the vote. The result follows an all too familiar pattern in American politics. Money wins. Walker's defense, financed by the Koch brothers, had outspent the recall campaign seven to one. The smaller the government, the more susceptible it is to the power of corporate interests and outside pressures, especially economic ones. But also, I think that there has been a, a decay in the power of governments generally in the Western world. We've gone back to the idea that uh, corporations should be enthroned because the creation of wealth is the ultimate good in society. Uh, you know, I'm not saying the creation of wealth is a bad thing, but I think I grew up at a time when it was simply, the economy was simply one pillar of a society that had many pillars. We are in Cave's Independence Square, which is now uh, often called the Euro Maidan, uh, the Euro Maidan. It has been the center of Ukraine's democracy movement. I am against any, any um, signs with uh, Moscow. This is just, you know, this is just a death for Ukrainian economy and for Ukraine. It started with a protest in Kyiv which became a mass protest whose center was right here. It was in the Maidan that Vladimir Putin's plan to make Ukraine a satellite of Russia came up against the power of democracy. The enemy was Putin's friend, Viktor Yanukovych, the Ukrainian president, who rejected the economic union with Europe his people had chosen and began to negotiate a deal with Russia. To the surprise of everyone, I think including Ukrainians, uh, the country exploded.
first visited the Maidan at 7 o'clock on a Sunday morning. The families and friends of the victims were already there.
uniquely for that time in Europe, a system that encouraged entrepreneurship. If you were a hardworking, risk-taking, alpha kind of person, you had a shot at making it to the big time. It's all about trading, but ultimately, it's about making money. So I'll read you a quote, and this was from uh, Francesco Petrarca, um, who was probably sitting close to the air right now, uh, sitting in a Venetian window overlooking the basin of, of St. Mark. And he wrote a letter to a friend in the 14th century. Uh, he was looking at the boats, looking at the trade issues. If he'd seen this vessel, he would have said it was not a boat, but a mountain swimming on the surface of the sea. What is the source of this insatiable thirst for wealth that seizes men's minds? Interestingly, and people see this in the records uh, that were kept in Venice, what you would expect, tremendous turnover at the top. It was the best traders. The traveling partners, if you were a great traveling partner, you would rise up to the top. But when you're in the elite itself, it's not that comfortable to constantly have these guys from the bottom coming up and challenging you. And so, you know, this very wealthy, very entrepreneurial elite slowly starts closing down that opportunity, starts closing down the open system which created it with the publication of the Libro Doro, the Book of Gold. And that book listed the names of the nobility. From then on, in order to be a member of Venice's ruling oligarchy, your name had to be in the book. Even at the time, the Venetians described what was happening. And so they named it. It's called La Serata, the closure, the cut. And that was really the beginning of the end. In the case of Venice, where the uh, it was a very entrepreneurial trading place, that suddenly you know you were able to set little corporations and invest in ships to go out, and everybody could play the game. Uh, as soon as they got rich enough, they decided, well, let's not let anyone else in. Let's not let anyone else play the game. That's in fact uh, stopped the sources of capital and mobility, and that brought Venice down very quickly. I couldn't get Venice out of my mind. The rising ocean that every morning floods the city. I wondered whether climate change, driven by the global economy, would be the final legacy of today's plutocrats. I mean, unfettered capitalism, as Karl Marx understood, is a revolutionary force. It commodifies everything. Human beings become commodities. The natural world becomes a commodity. Joe Guitar Sands that it then exploits until exhaustion or collapse, it knows no limits. 40% of the summer Arctic sea ice melts, and the oil companies look at it as a business opportunity. The death throes of the planet, they're dropping half billion dollar drill bits down there to get the last vestiges of oil, natural gas, minerals, and fish stocks. Um, you know, we're all on Herman Melville's The Pequod now, his novel Moby Dick, um, aimed for an extinct Indian tribe, and Ahab's in charge. The great Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis in the early part of the century says, and I quote, you can have the concentration of great wealth 
and you're going to have democracy, but you cannot have them both. So we, we have a plutocracy trying to pretend that it is still a democracy. I visited the abandoned summer homes of the Venetian aristocrats, monuments to a business empire that believed it would never end. I thought of Marco Polo setting off from these gardens for what must have seemed like the end of the earth. How with time, as the kingdoms of the plutocrats grew, every limit to growth would be surpassed. I thought of the cost, globalization, privatization, the millions of women and men whose lives are being declared surplus. we in the midst of a second serata, this time the closure of civil society, the level playing field on which democracy depends, infinitely more valuable than an order of merchants. As more and more people are abandoned by the plutocracy, we need to realize what is really at stake.
stock money. This is the facts. In the Porcupine Podcast. Man, oh man. It's another podcast of the Porcupine and Facts Experience. Bring us to a better day. Today's Friday. I wanted to start that off. Crypto. But the money, AI, technology, and cryptocurrency. Stay focused. This is the fact. Yep. another podcast of the porcupine and facts experience 